Welcome to episode four of the Applied Political Philosophy Podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Jack Miller. In this episode, we'll consider the judiciary as an avenue of political reform. I can conceive of a national destiny which meets the responsibilities of today and measures up to the possibilities of tomorrow. We will continue to shape the foundations of our nation until the bright day of justice emerges. Citizens of America expect more. They deserve and they want more. Applied Political Philosophy. Our first segment this episode is an excerpt from a lecture I delivered in April 2020. Today we're going to look at judicial reform, which is in some ways the easiest pathway to achieving reform. It is also the narrowest in the sense that not every political reform can be achieved through the judicial avenue. There needs to be a constitutional question involved and there needs to be an argument through the Constitution and through the body of judicial rulings that have been built up around the Constitution that makes it possible. And then there needs to be a court that is willing to accept that version of constitutional interpretation. One of the challenges of changing something important, and political reform is almost always an important change. It's not usually some kind of incremental, just like, okay, we'll we'll monkey with this little thing, the way that statutory change can be. Usually it's something important to set a new precedent or to even move established precedent in a different direction is very challenging. Now, it does happen, and the judicial avenue as a way of achieving political reform is a successful path. Now, there are all kinds of changes that can happen through the judicial avenue that aren't political reform. There are, in fact, most cases don't deal with questions about the fundamental nature of our political system the way political reform does. Any case, for example, uh, about the Affordable Care Act, you know, adjudicating whether or not the terms of that particular act of Congress are aligned with constitutional principles, that's about healthcare reform. And you can achieve healthcare reform, you can achieve immigration reform, you can achieve all kinds of reform through the judicial avenue. So it is not that the judiciary is political reform route only. It it touches on all the areas of reform. How does it happen? First, just want to contrast judicial versus amending a constitution. One of the things about amending a constitution is that there is an established process that is written into the Constitution itself. It's actually a formalized process. Whatever that process looks like, whatever level of majority or supermajority, whether it's a single layer or a double layer, whether there are three or four different methods uh, available in a Constitution, they're all written in the Constitution. And it, it is therefore a very formalized route. There are specific thresholds that are established and it's known and very mechanical what it takes to cross that threshold. The judicial avenue of reform is not like that. The judicial avenue of reform is actually based on a set of traditional practices. And those traditional practices operate through an institutional framework that is established formally in the Constitution that is then further elaborated because the Constitution doesn't say a whole lot about what the federal judiciary looks like. It is then further elaborated by statutory law. So the reason why we have nine members of the Supreme Court is not because the U.S. Constitution says that. The U.S. Constitution refers to a Supreme Court and other lesser courts as Congress determines, and that's pretty much it. And then there's a short listing of what powers the court exercises, none of which actually 
are the power that is required to achieve any kind of reform through the judiciary, which is judicial review. The ability to declare things null and void, whether that act be a law passed by a state legislature or by Congress, whether that act be an executive order, whether that act be uh, an executive branch regulation, any act of government can be voided through the power of judicial review. That power is not one of the powers that is listed in the U.S. Constitution as a power of the federal judiciary. It is, in fact, a traditional practice that was established through an important precedent, Marbury versus Madison in 1803, and has been strengthened throughout the ensuing decades. By the middle of the 19th century, it was well established and accepted universally that judicial review is a power of the judiciary. Now, not any act of government at all, and, I, and I, it's important to say that comes under its jurisdiction, because judicial review only works when there is a constitutional issue at hand, as I said before. So you can void acts of government based on the Constitution. There is a set of sort of traditional practices embedded within the exercise of judicial review that does place a boundary, not a statutory or constitutional, but a traditional boundary around how big this sphere of judicial review can be. One of the concepts is justiceability, right? Is a question justiceable? There are plenty of questions that are not justiceable. Term limits is not justiceable. Uh, if you want to limit the terms of members of the Senate to three terms, 18 years maximum, or members of the House of Representatives to six terms, 12 years maximum, whatever it might be, that's not a justiceable question. Justiceability is the boundary around this particular avenue of reform. What questions are not justiceable? There's black and white and then there's gray, as there is with almost everything. Some questions are clearly not justiceable. Other questions clearly are. And then some fall in that gray area where it's are they or are they not? The court has always maintained that boundary, but of course, different justices, different scholars, different political reformers have had different opinions on whether a, a specific question is or is not justiciable. All of this is a traditional practice. Really the entirety of the way the judiciary functions is saturated with traditional practices. The traditional practice of following precedent, having the Supreme Court rulings affect the entire judicial system into the future is the fundamental traditional practice. So the biggest one is precedent, otherwise known as stare decisis, which is Latin for let the decision stand. What precedent means and why precedent is so important is that unlike the constitutional amendment avenue, which is essentially an intentional balancing of responsiveness and stability, precedent is stability written into the culture of our judicial system. It's not governed by a constitution. The constitution doesn't say judges have to follow precedent, that other political officers who are subject to these rulings have to follow precedent. It's just deeply embedded in our culture. And what precedent does is precedent says that stability and long-term expectations for what the legal system, uh, how the legal system functions, are supremely important, but there's a little room for change and adaptation. It also strikes a balance between 
responsiveness to the needs of contemporary society to do things differently and stability, but stability is the primary value underlying the whole mechanism of judicial reform. You have to build on precedent in order to make change. Now, that's not a rule, hard and fast. Sometimes the Supreme Court simply says, precedent was wrong and we're just gonna toss it. The most famous example of this, and there are only a handful of examples, but the most famous example of this is Brown versus Board of Education. Brown versus Board of Education simply said, Plessy versus Ferguson, which was ruled 60 years earlier, which said uh, that you could have separate but equal facilities and that would satisfy the 14th Amendment's requirement for equal protection of the law. Brown versus Board of Education simply said, nope, that was wrong and this is the right way of looking at things. That is a overturning of an established precedent that itself had governed the educational system, the political system, the judicial system for 60 years. The notion that you could have a separate facility for different races as long as they were equal, and I'll air quote that because we know that they weren't equal, but the court in 1954 simply said, eh, that's wrong. So rare, one of the things that we all know about Brown versus Board of Education is that while it did just completely flip an old precedent, it's a lesson in what happens when you do that and why that's generally not a good idea which is there was massive resistance and there was significant disruption and there was a, just a giant level of conflict that resulted from Brown versus Board of Education. One of the things about changing precedent in such a drastic way as that, and you know, for example, the Supreme Court today just saying Roe versus Wade was wrongly ruled and there is no implied right for a woman to be able to terminate her pregnancy the way Roe versus Wade argued, that would create a lot of disruption and things that were once constitutional are suddenly not constitutional. So the practice, and this is again a traditional practice, why does precedent evolve gradually? Why is change almost always incremental? Partly the Brown versus Board of Education example shows just why it is that flipping precedent is problematic and dangerous. Now, in terms of naked power and in terms of what the Constitution says or what statute law says, all it takes is five members of the Supreme Court to do anything that they want. But those five people and the nine people who are on the Supreme Court have absorbed a culture whereby they don't just do that, that that is disruptive. Now, how do we get groundbreaking precedents? How do we get new precedents? This is where judicial ideology comes into play. I use the word ideology a little bit reluctantly, even though that's, that's kind of the common way it's referred to, because it's not the same kind of ideology as a political ideology. Judicial ideology is really more of a, it's a literary interpretation style. Here's a written constitution, which does not include all of the detail that we need to take all of the actions that we're going to take. How do we interpret the constitution to answer this plethora of uh, specific questions that is bound to come up in any kind of government system. Same thing with statutes. Statutes are longer, right? A statute could be a thousand pages, but there are still gonna be questions that come up where you're like, well, it's ambiguous, or there are, two, there are definitely two interpretations, and one interpretation says this thing is allowable, and another interpretation says that this thing is not allowable. Which direction do we go? This is where the judicial ideology, or probably the better term is judicial theory, comes into play, and this is where there is a difference between the judicial conservatives and judicial liberals. 
Now, I want to point out that there's a big difference between a political conservative or a political liberal and a judicial conservative and a judicial liberal. They do line up in certain ways. And typically, conservatives, both judicial and political, are Republican, and liberals, both judicial and political, are Democrats. But a judicial liberal doesn't agree with a political liberal on all things. And the same thing is true for judicial conservatives and uh, political conservatives. Judicial ideologies are more fixed than political ideologies because political ideologies are more responsive to changing times. The way that judges and justices and lawyers think through problems is with a different style of thought, a different style of argumentation, a different style of analysis and interpretation. What the precedent is, what the guidance and doctrines are, how they emerge will depend on constitutional interpretation to a, to a large extent. And this is where the availability of the judicial avenue of reform for particular kinds of political reform is hemmed in not just by this boundary, the justice ability boundary, it definitely is, but it's also hemmed in by the constitutional theory of the majority of people who are on the court. What a political reformer doing? One, you have to find a justiciable question. If the question that you have before you is in that gray area, one of your argumentative tasks is to argue that this is a justiciable question. And that actually is a matter of constitutional interpretation as well. How much do you want the powers of the three branches to be separated? That's part of your constitutional interpretation because the constitution itself doesn't say. It sets, in fact, the constitution itself doesn't use the term checks and balances. It doesn't use the term uh, separation of powers. It doesn't use the term judicial review. There are a lot of things that our constitution does not include at all that we think of as kind of foundational. A phrase that you would think is in the constitution, innocent until proven guilty. That phrase, which is at the core of our criminal justice system, that when you're arrested and charged, you are innocent unless proven guilty beyond a reasonable doubt, none of those words are in the U.S. Constitution. That is a traditional practice built up and supported by court rulings. There's a lot of stuff that's not in the Constitution. Separation of powers, checks and balances, judicial review are big ones that are not there, but that they're clearly very important to how our Constitution functions, and they are extraordinarily important to how justices see the way they have to interpret different phrases. Once we've allowed that this is a justiciable issue, what, what direction does precedent take us in? What does precedent tell us? And there is an interplay between precedent and constitutional interpretation, too, because you're at this point in case law with tens of thousands of cases, there's precedents that go in a lot of different directions. And that's actually what makes a good lawyer, and what makes particularly a good constitutional lawyer, is your ability to find the precedent that supports your side. Because the other side's gonna have supporting precedent. And what precedent, why precedent is problematic is that no two cases are exactly alike. And so when you're arguing from precedent, you're always arguing from, art, from analogy. You're saying this case here in front of us with specific uh, nature to it is very much like this other case that was ruled in this particular direction. So precedent is a ruling cultural norm in the legal and judicial world but it is itself not unproblematic because the application of precedent is always a matter of judgment, right? And that's why judges are called judges, is because they're making judgment calls about the applicability of rules of procedure and the applicability of previously ruled cases. I feel the need to update the previous lecture with one important note about the power and importance of precedent. 
In this lecture from 2020, in the pre-Dobbs era, I state that precedent overturning cases like Brown versus Board of Education are rare and that following precedent and preserving the stability it brings are deeply embedded values in our judicial system. With the most recent precedent-busting decision in Dobbs, fully reversing Roe versus Wade's protection of abortion rights, not only has the Supreme Court engaged in one of the rare acts of sudden overturning of a previous ruling, it has also signaled that precedent might not be as important as it once was. In fact, Justice Clarence Thomas has outright said that precedents that the current court thinks were wrongly decided ought to be fully overturned, and he's indicated a desire to do exactly that on issues such as same-sex marriage, sodomy laws, potentially prayer in school, etc. segment is another excerpted lecture, this one from July 2020. This lecture focused on lobbying through the judiciary to achieve policy reform in any area, and it picks up on the theme that ended the lecture you just heard. That is, what it takes to argue successfully before a federal court, particularly the Supreme Court. In this lecture, I refer to this practice, which most would call pleading or arguing, as lobbying, because I'm continuing a series on lobbying the legislative and executive branches, where the word lobbying is more commonly used. I wanted to highlight the parallels among these practices, that basically in all three areas, people are seeking a favorable outcome, and they're lobbying to get it. Advocating would probably be the better, more general term, but I've used lobbying instead. So when you hear that word in this lecture, just know that I'm talking about advocating for an outcome. In this case, the ruling of a court. There's a way to talk to judges that will get you much more likely to have the outcome that you desire. You're gonna to have to talk to them within the, within the discourse of legal reasoning. One of the first things you have to talk about, and it has to be true if you're going to lobby in the courts, in other words, if you're gonna use the courts to try to achieve policy victories, is the question that you want answered has to be a justiciable one. One of the things about the judicial branch as an avenue of lobbying is a more narrow lane. So the first thing you have to be able to do to even talk to a judge or a justice about getting a policy win in a case is to prevent them from throwing out the case as not justiciable. Once that's in place, once justiceability is, is on your side, doesn't guarantee you a win. It gives you the chance to begin lobbying. Precedent and interpretation are the ways in which judges and justices argue for their own outcomes. They say, okay, in United States versus Miller, Miller wins. Six of the nine justices say Miller wins. One of those six justices gets picked to uh, write the opinion of the court. And the ruling starts off by saying Miller wins. And here's the reason why. And the reasoning all goes through precedent and interpretation. The thing about precedent that you're fighting about, the two different sides in our adversarial system are arguing uh, not whether or not to use precedent. They're arguing about two elements of precedent. One, which set of precedents, which set of previous court rulings are relevant to this particular situation? And two, how should those previous precedents be applied in this situation, which is similar to, but not exactly the same? Very few court cases, very few important controversies are exactly the same as a previously ruled 
case. It happens sometimes, but it's very rare that the Supreme Court will take a case that has been decided exactly the same, or exactly the same kind of case as in the past. And one of the few reasons why courts will do that is to actually overturn the precedent. So, for example, in uh, Bowers versus Hardwick, the Supreme Court ruled that Georgia's sodomy, anti-sodomy law was constitutional in the Texas case where Texas's anti-sodomy law was virtually identical. And in that case, precedent was on the side of Texas, but the Supreme Court basically just overturned Bowers versus Hardwick and said that that was wrongly decided. That happens, but it happens very, very rarely. The reason why that happened is a combination of interpretation and a favorable majority, and I'll talk about that in just a second. The case at hand is never exactly the same. So one, both sides are saying, no, no, our set of precedents, which will lead you to rule on our side, are the relevant ones, and here's how you should apply them in this similar but different state. And those sides are saying, no, 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 our precedents are the ones you should be looking at, and you should be applying them in this particular way. So the discourse of this form of lobbying is really centered around finding cases that can be put into the minds of the judges and justices as the ones that are relevant and controlling. What precedent is controlling is one of the main arguments that's made. And often when lawyers come up in front of uh, the Supreme Court to argue and they're saying why their side should win, justices will interrupt them and say, so you're saying we should interpret this particular case, U.S. versus Miller 1994, uh, in this particular way, why, right? And so the lawyers will have to be prepared to defend their choice of that precedent as well as their application of that precedent. And that's, you know, essentially what it is, is, is it's really an intellectual joust. It's kind of a pure form of discourse where it's ideas clash against other ideas. Now, the other big set of ideas are interpretations. Lawyers will say, here's the relevant phrase in the statute, here's the relevant clause in the Constitution. We think you ought to interpret it this way because this interpretation of it gives our side a victory. One of the things about our, the interpretive argument is saying that in the context of other phrases and the intention, the underlying spirit and, and values of the Constitution, that this interpretation versus that interpretation is the more sensible one. Now, how are you going to get the court to buy your set of precedents and to accept your interpretation? This is where the favorable majority, and I put favorable in quotes in this case because um, it's a favorable majority is a very questionable and open-ended concept. It's not a slam dunk when you know who's on the Supreme Court, how they're going to rule. You don't know how five of the justices are going to view the precedent and interpretive arguments of the lawyers on both sides. Many cases are predictable-ish. Uh, some cases are not predictable. There are frequently surprises. And even when the ruling goes as it was expected, it was more like saying, well, the team that was favored to win the Super Bowl usually wins the Super Bowl, but they don't all the time. Uh, sometimes the underdog wins the Super Bowl. Supreme Court cases are maybe not, that's maybe not the exact best analogy, but a favorable majority is not by any means certain. Right? Just because we have more Republican-appointed justices on the Supreme Court doesn't mean that conservative causes are going to win all of their rulings. In fact, it's happened quite a bit that they haven't. Now, what makes for a favorable majority, though? This is where the judicial realm is quite different than the political realm. If you are a judicial conservative or a judicial liberal, 
That means a different thing than a political conservative or a political liberal. Uh, they align quite a bit. If you're, if you're a judicial liberal, you will agree in terms of policy with a lot of political liberal policies, but not all of them. Nor will you always, even if you agree with them as a human person, but as a judge, you might just say, well, you know, I, I definitely think, let's for example, I definitely think that people should have uh, robust health care provided to them if I'm a political liberal. But if I'm a judicial liberal, I might not see the Constitution as implying a strong right to health care resources from the government. I might just be like, well, that would be good if the legislature did it, but as a judge, I can't do it. One of the things about a judicial philosophy is that we can categorize people as judicial liberals and judicial conservatives and judicial moderates, but it kind of doesn't really fit. And one of the reasons it doesn't fit is because part of what a judicial philosophy entails is justiceability. Part of what a judicial philosophy entails is how deeply into the text of the Constitution you should dig, how much interpretation and implication you should engage in, how much it's reasonable to depart from old precedents that represent a very bygone perspective, like a 50 or 60 year old precedent might seem to you still controlling or like, well, it's a little less, less uh, controlling because times are different. We can, we can relook at that. Judicial philosophy is squirrelier than political philosophies. They are usually also deeply held, but there's no easy way to say we've got five conservatives in the court and four liberals on the court. On certain issues, you can say, yeah, we've got five clear conservatives on this particular issue of presidential power and four liberals on this issue of presidential power. The conservatives are more apt to take an expansive view of presidential power and the liberals are more apt to take a narrow view of presidential power. And so if we get a presidential power case, it's likely to get a five to four win for the conservatives. And that is true for any number of cases, but it's definitely not true for a lot. All, there are also multiple versions of the conservative view and the liberal view on every issue. Racial equity, gender fairness, the meaning of the Fourth Amendment, the robustness of criminal defense rights. Just because you're a judicial liberal doesn't mean that you're all for a very vigorous set of criminal defendants' rights. There are definitely judicial liberals who are very much for making sure that criminal defendants have a very robust set of rights. And then there are other judicial liberals who are maybe more moderate on that particular issue because their reading of the Constitution you know, leans in that direction, but doesn't move really far over in that direction. What is a favorable majority? A favorable majority is just one where the judicial philosophies of a majority of the, of the justices are susceptible to your type of argument. And what you as a, as a lobbyist in the judicial branch have to do as a, as a constitutional lawyer is you have to try to figure out how to frame your precedent and your interpretation of the constitution of the statute in a way that will speak to the judicial philosophy of a majority of the justices. And in, in a lot of ways, what's good is that when the justices ask questions, it gives the lawyers a chance to tailor their answer to that particular justices. Like usually the question will express some feature of that justice's judicial philosophy. Another reason why there's a difference between judicial and political philosophies is that political philosophies tend to alter over time. So what the conservative view on an issue is today might be very different than the conservative view was 30 years ago. Um, and so political conservatives have adapted. One example is that it's becoming more conservative to be a protectionist 
in terms of international trade, whereas 10 and definitely 20 years ago, it was a conservative view to want free trade and open global markets. Politics changes. Judicial philosophies, typically once a judge as a young lawyer and then as a, a young judge has a philosophy embedded, typically, however much times change, because these judges are immunized from uh, public opinion because they don't have to get reelected and because they see their job as applying precedent and doing so in a legal way, not in a political way, typically they're not going to transform their judicial philosophy as the times change. The idea of the legal system is that it's a stable set of expectations over decades and decades. And so the acculturation of lawyers and judges that goes on in law school and continues through the, uh, the practice of law really essentially pulls hard against developing and transforming. Politicians respond to changes in the times, changes in current events, changes in public opinion, much more so than judges do. One of the things about getting a favorable majority is that you want to get, you're better off. If you have conservative views and conservative policies that you want to uh, enact through the Supreme Court, you're, all, you're going to be better off with more Republican-appointed justices than with Democratic-appointed justices. That's a, an easy thing to do to know that you would rather have Donald Trump appointing people to the Supreme Court than Hillary Clinton or Joe Biden if you are looking for conservative victories. So you're going to, of course, push for those partisan wins, but you're not always going to get exactly the outcomes on a case-by-case -case basis that you want. And in fact, the uh, appointees uh, to the Supreme Court that Donald Trump has made were pleasing to conservative groups, but the uh, rulings that they participated in have not always been pleasing to those conservative groups that were happy to have them on the court. And that's how it goes. Victories in the judicial branch are more unpredictable. However, they are also more permanent, right? Nothing's permanent, but they are more long-lasting. They're closer to permanent. That's not to say that you can't win a case where precedent looks like it's against you because you almost always are going to be able to bring a relevant set of precedents to say to the court, here's the relevant precedents that will win for your side. So it's, it's, it, this lobbying the judicial branch is more unpredictable.